Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. This is Ion Veterans Weekend, a roundup of the week's most important stories affecting those who served. Presented by University of Maryland Global Campus. There are nearly 20 million, 20 million military, military veterans, veterans in, in the, the U.S., US. Each week, we focus on their stories. Powered by ConnectingVets.com. This, this is CBS Ion Veterans. Ion Veterans. Welcome to another edition of CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. This week, we'll meet the irreverent and inspiring founder of Soldier Fit. And then Drosan uh, Escamilla, that man hated me. And I stepped off the thing. He was like, what have we got here? A fat body. One tubby tubby. Two tubby tubby. You know, this was back before we cared about people's emotions. I go out there and I proceed to just get my rear end whipped. And uh, I'm getting ready to black out. Guys got me an arm triangle choke. And for whatever reason, it popped into my head. You promised him you wouldn't embarrass him. And those three people were that night. That night changed my life. And we'll go behind the scenes at the CIA with the author that's interviewed almost every living CIA director. The CIA director commands an army of analysts, covert operatives, paramilitary warriors, lethal drones. But the whole enterprise is for naught if you don't have a seat at the table with the president. That's all ahead this hour. Now our first guest is an entertaining, outspoken Army veteran. Danny Farrar is an Army veteran who's gone from the nightmare at the Pentagon on 9-11 to living a dream he never thought possible. The combat vet who served in the 82nd Airborne has overcome so much more than just combat. Danny survived a tough upbringing, weight issues, and a path that was destined for a rough life. Later in life, he became an inspiration to his fellow veterans and founded the gym Soldier Fit, which is a chain of CrossFit-like fitness facilities that stems from Maryland and Virginia to Ohio and Pennsylvania. I met with Danny Farrar at a Soldier Fit gym in Frederick, Maryland to hear his amazing story. Yeah, you cannot get, a, you cannot get away from how big this, oh, no. this space is and the tires well, and the green carpet. I'll and tell you a funny story. The day we opened this, 
we were in here like literally to we were in here i think me and my business partner left here at 2 30 in the morning went back to my house slept for two hours and came back in here and was so excited this was my first location you know and we were so proud of how big it was and and you know we're sitting there and everybody comes in they go out and we're waiting and i'm like asking everybody after 11 like oh how did you like it what's going on blah 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 and uh one of the ladies looked at me and goes i thought it would be bigger and I mean, it's a lot to shut me up. I had no answer. And I, I, Dave was in the other office and he was just, I mean, he was like, he was, he was, he was dumbfounded. So uh, that's hilarious. A woman said that to you. Oh yeah, I know. It, it broke my heart. Like there's no way you're little or skinny never goes well with a guy. So it <laughs> Now, after getting the tour of the soldier fit facility, we sat down in his office and the conversation turned to our military days. And uh, I got off, stepped off the truck, and then drilled on uh, Escamilla. That man hated me. I mean, with a passion, that man hated me. And I stepped off the thing. He was like, what have we got here? A fat body, one tubby tubby, two tubby tubby. You know, this was back before we cared about people's emotions. Um, you know, I, got, I was putting potato salad on my, uh, on my plate one day, and he was like, what are you doing, Ferrari? And I was like, uh, getting potato salad drills on. He was like, you are too fat for mayonnaise. Put it back. And I'm like, I just thought I was pleasantly plump, but okay, fine. fine. I, I had I, curves. I can't, I can't, can't find. I just won't eat the food, I guess. Whatever, bro. You're an ass. I hate you. Um, but, you know, and it was funny. He rode us, he rode me so, uh, so hard too, man. Like, I literally broke all the bones of my foot on the last road march, and I'm I'm walking, uh, <laughs> and I'm like I'm I'm in horrible pain. I'm limping, and he's like, "You got little heart disease, Ferrari, little heart disease." And then like the sad, I think probably the saddest I've ever looked as a physical sight was I had broke every bone in my foot, and we were on the last mile. I'm like, this just can't not get any worse. And then my rucksack strap breaks. And so I'm walking. I mean, I did not come into the turning blue looking like a badass. I came, I'm limping. And as I'm limping, my, my one strap rucksack is just hitting my back, just flopping. You know, you, you look like a tall yeah, mess. Yeah, you like, you think like in your mind, you're this, oh, I am now a warrior. And I just came in looking like, just like, take me to pasture, man. And just you put me out. Now, what happened to Farrar next was something that nobody ever saw coming. 9-11. He was stationed in D.C. with a unit known as the Old Guard. The oldest uh, active infantry unit. Mm-hmm. And Old Guard, they do the burials at Arlington National Cemetery. They field the specialty platoon, so I was on the drill team. Um, they field the, obviously, everybody knows the Tomb of the Unknown. Yep. On the now, like so many Americans that day, the television coverage of the planes hitting the towers was followed by anxiety and fear. But without much time to react, Farrar and his Washington, D.C.-based unit would soon be on the front lines. I was at the Pentagon an hour after the plane hit. Um, but they were like, uh, we, need a, we need a team, a team leader to volunteer guys to go do something. I was like, cool, I'll, you know, we're, we're not doing anything. We'll volunteer. We'll go in there. And um, so we did. And then they were like, okay, you're going to go get bodies. And so we went in. And, you know, it's kind of crazy because, I mean, you can see my hands now. like, And my hands are... These, this is as best they look. Um, you know, I didn't even realize this until we got invited back to the 17 year reunion of it. All, we went in with like literally like a flu mask, like 
that's what we went in with. I was in the fire department, like, managed to get the flames under. You know, we went in a flu mask and some, like, essentially Carhartt work gloves. And that's what we went in and pulled bodies out with and friggin' whole nine yards. And you're breathing in the fumes and the jet fuel and all of that. And... And the building was built so long ago, too. Yeah. There's asbestos. There's, I'm yeah. sure, all these other different kind of building elements that we yeah. don't use anymore that we're now just dust. And in, and in that case, you know, with that, like, I'm not... You know, I, I, I kind of halfway joke that, you know, I'm going to die of some horrible cancer. But the truth is, it's probably what will happen. I mean, between the Pentagon and then a deployment to Iraq and everything that was going on over there, you know, it, but it didn't occur to us until we sat down at the 17-year reunion and everybody's got the same thing. We all have stomach issues. We all have hand issues. We, we all have skin issues. Um you know, that there unequivocally, we went in there, we breathed in probably asbestos, we breathed in jet fuel, we breathed in people. Like, at the end of the day, that's what was in the air, right? Um, and so you, you go through that process, and I still remember the name of the first guy I found. His name was Donald Simmons. And I know his name because the FBI and ATF were in there categorizing the scene. And so... You know, you go in, it's literally, if you ever watch CSI, that's what it looked like. They had little cone things all over the place. And they roll the body over, and they pull out the ID, and they say, hey, uh, uh, state his name for the record. Mm -hmm. And they're like, okay, you need to remove him. And so we rolled him over on, like, the old classic gurney. Um, And, you know, I've always told people, everything I've done that I guess you would say is either high speed or or traumatic, to me, it's always looked fake. Like when I jump out of an airplane, uh, it looks fake to me. That like like it's a fake special effect out there. When I was in the Pentagon, it didn't look real. I mean, it's like some stuff you'd see on a movie. Like all of the drop tiles are down. There's wires hanging all over. There's rubble all over the place. All of the walls are buckled. You've got it's pitch black in there in the middle of the day. It's friggin', um, you know, you've got you're wading around in knee deep water, and. So we rolled him over onto the gurney and we're, you know, carrying him out in the whole nine yards. And he just, he's a big dude. And he just keeps falling over on me. Like, keeps falling over on me. And one of the times he falls over on me, his hand hits mine. And I look down, he's got a wedding band on his hand. And I was like, you know, for me in that moment, like, there's somebody at home right now praying I'm not carrying this. You know? And then we ended up, we called it the widow's tent because they brought all of these people in. Uh, so our tent was like here and their tent was right here. They brought all these people who they who they knew were dead. And you just sat there and listened to like the spouses of these people cry the whole night. And for me that was that was like that was the call for me to say, hey, you know what, I want to get deployed and eventually when an opportunity came to deploy, it set me up. I volunteered to go over there. Now we'll take a quick break, but when we return, we'll hear the unlikely path that Army veteran Danny Farrar followed, going from combat veteran to becoming an inspirational force in people's lives. That's ahead when CBS Eye on Veterans returns. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans, which is powered by ConnectingVets.com. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now we'll jump back into the interview I did with Army veteran Danny Farrar. He's known in the Mid-Atlantic as the founder of the gyms called Soldier Fit. But before he was inspiring others, he had to find his own inspiration, something he found in combat. 
I was with uh, a unit over there that was created for it, Multinational Strategic Training Command um, in Sticky. And what I did was convoy escort for their J3 section. Was it like Root Irish? Yeah. So I did, uh, I mean, I've been just about every, for, through Fallujah. Uh, um, and I tell you, we go, when I, you know, I was obviously there after the battles of Fallujah, uh, not long after the battles of Fallujah. I was there from, uh, 0506, yeah, 0506. And you ride through Fallujah and you're like, them boys put in work. I mean, there just, yeah. there just wasn't a, a building there that didn't have bullet holes in it. But, you know, uh, running all up and down there, I did over 800 convoy missions, um, up and down. You know, we were humming all day long. Um, for and us, a convoy mission, just like from what I've gathered from the warfighters I talked to, um, like just suspended anxiety because right it's funny you said that because i ended up uh, i won't say his name but we had this guy that drove for us and he got attached to us later on and you, you know he he said something along the lines of um i forgot how he worded it now but he's like you know we're not all at we're, we're not in combat we're not in combat all day and i, I said I, and a i stuck out of the top of the truck so i had like, you were in the turret yeah i was in the turret so um, you know, and I'd get missed by a bullet. Let me hit my turret. If I'd turned a second earlier, if the bullet would have been an inch higher, like so to this day, the eeriest thing was when that feeling the vibration from that bullet when it hit the turret and feeling it rotate up. You know, I mean, you just you're that far, man. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I was like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, but up here behind the gun, like, cause I mean, dudes were getting their heads cut off with wires across the line. You know, you're going under bridges. You're watching for grenades to get to tossed down into your your Humvee. You're you're moving through a crowded market. You're just setting up there, perched out. Like I was like, you may not think you're in combat, but I am in combat the entire time. Yeah. Like from the time that I wake up, and you know, I think a lot of guys have that same mentality. I think when you go into the crazy thing about war is, I think there there are really a few different type of people in there. There's the, uh, and I'm going to mess this quote up, but it's, uh, I love the quote. It's, I forget who said it, but it's like, for every hundred men, 90 or shouldn't even be there. You know, they're just targets, right? And then nine of them are, are, are fighters, right? And, and we're lucky to have them, right? Um, uh, but one is a warrior and one will bring the rest home. The problem is, too many of the ninety believe their ass is the one. I, I've not, I'm, not, I've never thought that about myself. Like, I will, if, if anything, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm lucky, I'm, I'm one of the, I'm one of the eight. Now, here's the corner in the story that I've turned literally hundreds of times. The come to Jesus moment, the part of the story where we go from the hardest of the hard, to a new life. But as you're about to hear, Danny Farrar, founder of Soldier Fit, beat astronomical odds to be where he is today. And I'm going to paint it with a wide brush here, so you know people that hear this don't get upset. I'm not saying it's everybody, but facts are facts. Like yeah. The majority yeah. of the people that go into the military are coming from the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. Right, True. they're coming True. from the inner cities. They're coming from the rural uh, counties, and a lot of times, rich kids don't have to join. Yep. Oh, amen. amen. And a lot of times, what comes with being poor 
is a lot of baggage that no one, I mean, that's the whole point of trying to get a better life for your kids is so they don't have to start with this additional baggage. And the reality is no matter how nice you start, you all get baggage. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I, uh, I was molested as a kid by my brother and sister. Uh, my mother had died when I was in airborne school. My brother committed suicide six months later. Um, then, then the first team into the Pentagon, then combat. Then I uh, ended up getting fired from the first job. I got outside the Army, which, believe it or not, was selling gym memberships. Um, go through a divorce. <laughs> Pardon me for laughing, but God, yeah. that's ironic. Yeah, it is I mean, ironic. I mean, you've got one of the most successful gym franchises. I mean. it's one, at one point in time, my only goal was to manage a gym. Danny Farrar would eventually go out one night by himself for a beer. Dissatisfied with the company he found, he would go home. And that was where he tried to take his own life. When he woke up from the blur and the haze of the pills and the booze, he would eventually work through therapy in the psych ward at a local hospital. But he worked on his demons on a mat as an MMA fighter. And I wanted to do a fight. I wanted to find a way to try to process my demons and, and you know, try to get out there. I didn't have any illusions of being a professional fighter or anything. And uh, it happens all the time in the amateur level. Yeah. Um, my opponent got switched last minute. It turns out my new opponent lied about his record, said he had zero fights, he had seven. Uh, he didn't make weight. Uh, I walk around about 185, 190. I fought at 145. Um, he came in at like 160. Um, and he ends up being the head coach for the other team. And my coaches didn't want me to fight him. Zach didn't want me to fight him. And I said, listen, we knew there was a chance that I was going to get my butt whooped. People have got their tickets. They're here. Let's go. And Master Mike, former Marine, uh, who owns Evolve Academy, I said, hey, listen, I can't promise you I'll win, but I promise you I won't embarrass you. And I go out there, and I proceed to just get my rear end whipped. And uh, I'm getting ready to black out. The guy's got me in an arm triangle choke. And for whatever reason, it popped into my head. You promised him you wouldn't embarrass him. And I managed to get out of the hole. The guy takes my back, gets me another choke, managed to get out of that. Jumps to the front, mounts, uh, mounts me, starts beating me. I'm like, if I don't move, they're going to stop it. Move, catches my arm, gets me an arm bar. And finally, I manage, I just crack him. And end up taking his back, choking him out with a few seconds left in the round. And Master Mike comes up to me afterwards and says, uh, you won't quit. Would you like to bring your uh, program into my gym? And he opens his doors to me. I mean, I, it's funny. It's it's funny. Sometimes I still get emotional talking about this. He opens his door uh, to me. Um, didn't charge me a dime for rent. Until the day that I die, I'll, I'll never pay that man back. I mean, literally opened his doors to me. Let me treat the place like his own. And that was January 2011. And that we ended that month with 13 members and 30 classes a month in a funky old martial arts gym. And fast forward to now, 17 gyms later, over 4,000 members, Inc. Rank, Inc. 5,000 ranked, small business of the year at every level from county to national. Um, I, I am here unequivocally because three people believed in me. I'm here because Master Mike believed in me. A business partner, Dave, would find couches to crash on when I was homeless for me. And my wife met me six months after my suicide attempt. And those three people in that night, that might change my life. And we are here because 
you just don't, you never know, man. That fight, when I won and he gave me the opportunity, that was it. Now, as we concluded the interview, you couldn't help but notice one of the most amazing parts about Danny's story. As he sits behind his desk with his tattoos and his flannel, looking like an MMA badass, he's surrounded by pictures of family. And that's exactly what he created with Soldier Fit. You do it for the right reasons. Yeah. Stuff happens. You know, know, it's funny you said that because I was talking to somebody yesterday about it and they were like, I was like, man, I can't even tell you how we got here. You know, like we showed up. Like, that's it. We showed up every day, you know, and, and I've changed now where I actually do a lot more planning. We, I, you can go ahead and date it today. We are going to change the fitness industry. I've had the idea of my lifetime and we're going to start the process for putting the plan together to implement it. Um, and Soldier Fit's going to do it. Danny Farrar continues to grow the Soldier Fit brand with over 15 locations. He's also in the process of raising money to build a massive veteran resource center in Frederick, Maryland. And despite 2020 being a tough year for gyms because of coronavirus, Soldier Fit gyms have followed all state guidelines and are currently open for training. To find a Soldier Fit gym near you, check out soldierfit.com. Now stick around and we'll go inside the CIA with the author of Spy Masters, next on CBS Ion Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host and journalist with ConnectingVets.com, Phil Briggs. Now our next guest has had the incredible opportunity to sit down and interview almost every living director of the CIA. These men and women are the gatekeepers to the world's most powerful intelligence service whose spying and covert actions take place on every continent. Now at any pivotal moment, the power of the CIA can act as a break on rogue presidents. Like in the 1970s, when Richard Helms famously refused to participate in Nixon's crimes, and more recently when a CIA whistleblower went public with intelligence so powerful, it ignited impeachment proceedings against President Donald Trump. The book Spy Masters, How the CIA Directors Shape History and the Future, shares extensive interviews with these directors, which our country has depended on to prevent another Pearl Harbor, 9-11, or the next global pandemic. And here to tell us all about this book is the author, Mr. Chris Whipple. Chris, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. You know, as I mentioned before we started the interview, I'm a total geek. Got a family history with the agency that goes back several generations and absolutely love the secretive dark stories that our government does and uh, that is part of the clandestine services and the intelligence community. So I love the tone of your book. And uh, at the beginning, at the outset of the book, you said that it'll answer a few main questions, which we'll touch on in this interview, uh, mainly What is the proper relationship between a president and a CIA director? What is the secretive mission of the CIA? And is the CIA a force for good or evil? Let's begin with one of those questions off the top. What is the appropriate relationship between a sitting president and the CIA? So, you know, that's a that's a great question. And and it's I write about it, obviously, extensively in, in the book. It's almost mission impossible for uh, for a CIA director in one sense because on the one hand he has to be he or she has to be able to walk into the Oval Office and tell the president hard truths and yet he also has to have the president's ear. The CIA director commands an army of analysts, covert operatives, paramilitary warriors, lethal drones, but the whole enterprise is for naught 
if you don't have a seat at the table with the president. And that can be a very tricky relationship, considering sometimes you're speaking hard truths that are not easy to hear. Um, let's speed up to the current day. Uh, we've certainly seen things go back and forth with the intelligence community and President Trump. Um, you say in the book that President Trump was ignoring warnings of the pending pandemic and that uh, I saw in another interview, you say that it's worse than President Bush ignoring the warnings ahead of 9-11. Well, first, I should say that uh, Donald Trump is not the first president we've had who was convinced that the CIA was a deep state full of liberals who were determined to bring him down. Richard Nixon thought the same thing of the CIA under Richard Helms, who was the iconic, uh, you know, martini in one hand, cigarette in the other, director back back in the 60s. Um, so it's not the first time we've had a president who brought real contempt for the intelligence community into office. But that's one of the problems. Uh, and that was a problem when the president's daily brief was uh, full of warnings uh, throughout January and February of 2020. Uh, we are suffering the consequences of a president who ignored those warnings, along with warnings from his staff, the CDC and uh, HHS, uh, compared to 9-11, which, was, which I write about extensively in, uh, in the Spy Masters, and we can, we can talk about that in a minute. Compared to 9-11 with the red lights flashing in, in that famous phrase, uh, the COVID virus arrived with horns blaring and sirens going off in a parade down Main Street. Uh, Donald Trump looked the other way, and uh, we are now suffering more than 215,000 uh, Americans lost as a result. Now, I've heard in other interviews with the president uh, that the CIA downplayed the virus. But you spoke to people, I mean, you spoke to former CIA directors and people that are on the inside. Um, what does your book say about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm not buying that. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. I mean, at one point, um, the president specifically said that he was briefed on January 23 by a briefer whose name is Beth Sanner, we now know. And he said that she told him it was, quote, no big deal, end quote. Well, we haven't heard from her, uh, and we haven't heard from Gina Haspel, the CIA director, uh, their version of the story. But the truth is that the PDBs, as it's called, the President's Daily Brief, is by definition a big deal. Everything in it is important for the President to know, or it wouldn't be there. Moreover, when you have an oral briefing on top of that, because, of course, uh, the President doesn't read the PDB, uh, then it is indeed a very big deal. So I'm not buying it. I talked to people like Bob Gates, the former uh, director, who said that makes that doesn't make any sense. It wouldn't be there if it weren't important. Um, so I'm I'm not buying this notion. I think he's throwing the briefer under the bus. What impact do the clashes with the president have on the work of the CIA? Well, the, the good the good news first. The good news is that almost everybody out of CIA is is pretty good at uh, keeping their heads down and doing their job and ignoring whoever is in the Oval Office at any given time. Um, they're professionals. They they're dedicated to their work and they and they try to ignore that stuff. Having said that. It's, uh, it can be demoralizing when the President of the United States refers to the intelligence community as Nazi Germany. Uh, that can't be good for your morale. And But much more importantly, 
the, the problem is that when you realize that the president doesn't bother to read his president's daily brief, which every previous president has done, uh, and when he tends to ignore uh, most of what his briefers tell him, or go off on uh, go off on rants about Fox News or other his other sources of information, that can be that can be really demoralizing. So I think for the analysts, it's 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 a tough time. Uh, you know, CIA is really divided into two camps: analysts and covert operatives. There are lots of other people out there, but those are the two main camps. And the operatives probably like the free hand they have at the moment to go out and do covert ops. But the analysts are not getting through to the president. Yeah. And again, the analysts I found interesting in your book, they're the um, they're the data professionals. They're the ones that look at trends and look at reports and look at all the kinds of intelligence, signal intelligence, human intelligence. And they try to, you know, kind of mesh it all together to tell the right story, kind of the uh, nerds, if you will. And the operatives are like the Hollywood flashy, outgoing, gregarious types that are, you know, all about the mission and all about, uh, you know, the uh, hands on part of intelligence gathering. And you kind of really paint a vivid picture of those two personality types, which I thought was funny. Yeah, the analysts are uh, tend to be sun deprived and, and introverted. Uh, and the joke goes that uh, you, it, what's an extroverted analyst? That's a guy who stares at your shoes. Uh, and uh, the the operatives, on the other hand, are people that uh, break the laws of foreign countries on a daily basis and have to try to talk people into betraying their country. Uh, not for the faint hearted. Which brings me to my next question uh, between those two camps, between those two different types of uh, dedicated intelligence professionals. Um, they execute the role of the CIA, and I know a lot of us just know it through James Bond and know it through Hollywood. But really, what is the essential mission of the CIA? Well, it's to keep America safe. It's, uh, it's hard to overstate the importance of the CIA director because he or she is the person we depend on to prevent another 9-11 uh, or even a lethal pandemic. Um, it's true that the CDC has the principal responsibility for warning of a pandemic, but the intelligence community plays a supporting role in that. And the the mission of CIA is, is essentially to keep America safe. Now, there is all kinds of, uh, there's debate within the agency about whether the whether the CIA has become a quote-unquote killing machine uh, with its paramilitary capabilities and its lethal drones at the expense of its original mission, which was really thought of as intelligence gathering, uh, pure and simple. So there's always a tension between those two roles, and uh, it's a real debate, uh, kind of a battle for the soul of the agency that's going on to this day. Now, when we return, we'll hear about what the CIA actually said to the Bush administration just days before the 9-11 attack. And we'll look at some of the other dramatic chapters from Spy Masters, how the CIA directors shape history and the future. When CBS Eye on Veterans returns. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host and former Navy journalist, Phil Briggs. Now we'll jump back into our interview with author Chris Whipple. 
about his book, The Spy Masters, how the CIA directors shape history and the future. Now, as veterans, I find this book very interesting because it does talk about that kind of paramilitary aspect of the CIA missions. And I know as veterans also, we understand that the global war on terrorism started essentially with 9-11, but our invasion of Iraq was to eliminate the weapons of mass destruction that have been called into question so many times. And your book has kind of a damning assessment of CIA Director George Tenet in the chapter entitled Slam Dunk. Tell me a little bit about what you learned from him. Well, you know, some people, the, the conventional wisdom, I, I think I'm actually pretty fair to George Tenet in, in comparison to, to some other historians, uh, because the conventional wisdom is that the CIA cooked the books, that, you know, under pressure from Cheney and, and others uh, in the White House, that they told the White House what it wanted to hear, namely that there were WMDs in Iraq. I don't think it's that simple. I think it was a terribly flawed uh, assessment that the CIA delivered. Uh, I, I do think they were under tremendous pressure, uh, and they blew it. But I'm not convinced that that was something that was deliberate on their part. And George Tenet, the then, current, the then director of CIA, will tell you uh, passionately that, uh, look, we got it wrong. We have to live with that, but every other intelligence agency in the world got it wrong, too. And he's got a point. Hmm. Okay. Now, as the war progressed, we heard a lot about enhanced interrogation techniques. And I found it interesting in one of the chapters, you talked about how President Obama and Vice President Biden at the time were against them. Um, what did you learn about the techniques like waterboarding and getting physical with terrorists during the interviews? Um, what did you take away from... Well, one of the one of the great stories in the book is uh, concerns uh, the current director Gina Haskell, who is the first woman uh, to rise to the pinnacle of the intelligence world as CIA director, and she's a fascinating character, a mystery woman who sort of flies under the radar, who started as a covert operative in Africa and rose to the top. Um, I tell the story about how she was sent to this black site, so-called black site in Thailand where Abu Zubaydah, the al-Qaeda terrorists, and others were being subjected to these so-called enhanced interrogation techniques. And it's a great story uh, about her experience there. But um, I would say that, you know, my book is about the directors, and I really try to not only humanize these mysterious characters, but I also tried to get a sense of um, what it was like and in, in the post-9-11 period, uh, Tennant and others, George Tennant, were convinced that a second wave of al-Qaeda attacks was coming. They were convinced it was imminent. And they would, they would cite that as the, their motivation for wanting to get intelligence about imminent threats ASAP. Now, I'm not defending enhanced interrogation, but... Um, I was trying to get inside their heads, and if if readers want to find out what they were thinking, I think uh, the Spy Masters is a, a good place to to go. Mm-hmm. No, it was very gripping and fascinating to hear it from the horse's mouth, if you will. I mean, you got a chance to get inside their head, and 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 they sort of conveyed what they were thinking at the time. Um, 
My next couple questions, kind of perfect for the Halloween season, as I thought the titles of many chapters sounded ideal for a Halloween book. Uh, stay, <laughs> stay the hell away from the whole damned thing. Uh, talking about Nixon's era or a jungle, right. f- jungle full of poisonous snakes. Um, one of the chapters that jumped out at me was called, That's the Most Frightening Thing I've Ever Heard. Tell me a little bit about yeah. that. So William Casey was an absolutely incredible character. You could never have made this guy up if you were John le Carre. Um, He was a brilliant uh, uh, former uh, Wall Street uh, businessman who uh, wasn't uh, shy about cutting corners. Uh, And he, he was part of the OSS during World War II. And he, uh, he, mumbled so much that his speech was unintelligible to most people. And, and Ronald Reagan could barely understand a word he ever said. Uh, and Reagan said this at one point out loud, and Howard Baker Jr., uh, the senator from Tennessee, paused and said, Mr. President, that's the most frightening thing I've ever heard. Uh, it didn't stop Casey, and Baker's point was, it didn't stop Casey from careening all over the world, carrying out covert operations against the Soviets, which uh, which he famously did. And of course, Casey was ultimately undone by a harebrained scheme that came to be known as Iran Contra. And that that of course involved the selling or the the um, selling of weapons in exchange. Yeah, selling weapons to Iran and then and then illegally siphoning the. Uh, the profits from those sales to the contra, so-called Contras who were fighting the Sandinistas in Central America. Certainly a troubled period in the CIA's history. And again, fascinating to kind of hear it from people that were in the room and hear it from people that were around those events. Never a dull moment with, <laughs> with any of these CIA directors, I can tell you. <laughs> Another one I found uh, frightening just by the title was They're Coming Here. Yeah. So I have a a big chapter on the whole walk up to 9-11, the period of months that preceded the uh, Al-Qaeda attacks on the World Trade Center. And uh, it's a harrowing story with lots of new detail about how much the CIA knew about an imminent attack. They didn't know exactly where, but they knew it was coming. They knew thousands of Americans were going to die. And they they warned the Bush White House in no uncertain terms, especially in a meeting on July 10, 2001, where they went over and Kofor Black, the head of the Counterterrorism Center, pounded on the table uh, with Condi Rice and said, we've got to go on a war footing now. Well, the Bush White House essentially ignored these warnings. Uh, they just didn't want to hear about it. Uh, couldn't wrap their heads around the idea that a bunch of guys in caves in Afghanistan could do this. And uh, the rest is history. Um, Now fast forward to uh, January of 2020 and Donald Trump getting warnings about uh, a coronavirus in China. Um, I would say this has happened before. Warnings have been ignored. But this one that we're living through right now was even more egregious. Hmm. Last question I'll ask, and, and, and this is, you know, obviously armchair quarterback type stuff, but um, based on your interviews, can the CIA keep us safe? Well, there's, here's the dilemma. I mean, the CIA can only do so much. The CIA uh, obviously has a 
is the world's most powerful intelligence agency. It's, uh, as I said before, it consists of an army of analysts and covert operatives uh, around the world. Uh, it, it, can, it can warn us, but as Richard Helms, the director I mentioned before, the iconic uh, uh, CIA director, famously said, uh, it's not enough to ring the bell. You gotta make sure the president hears it. You can find Chris Whipple's book, The Spy Masters, how the CIA directors shape history and the future everywhere you find books. And as always, you can find this show online at ConnectingVets.com. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs, and I'll have more great stories for you next week on CBS Eye on Veterans. Earn your degree online at University of Maryland Global Campus. Meet with our military and veteran advisors in our virtual advising remotely at UMGC.edu slash virtual advising. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.